On December 7, 1941, the Japanese ushered in an attack on an unsuspecting naval station at Pearl Harbor in Honolulu, Hawaii. More than 2,400 sailors, marines, and airmen lost their life that day, along with almost 70 civilians, leaving over 1,000 wounded. Ninety minutes after the attack began, it was over. Almost half the deceased died on the USS Arizona. This attack on neutral America led to our participation in World War II. The days following the attack, everyone's focus was to put out the fires, clean up the wrecks, salvage and reuse, and document the dead. This episode, however, is dedicated to those men who perished or were left behind. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Special thanks to listener David Gatlin for requesting this week's topic. There is so much information out there about the events of December 7, 1941, that I couldn't possibly do it justice in one episode. Luckily, Mr. Gatlin requested a specific substory that is right up Bag of Bones Alley. The men left behind. In every war across time and nations, our fallen warriors have been entombed in places far from home, some never to be found. According to an article by Addie Bink for WGN Chicago, she writes, quote, As of December 1, 2021, DPAA reports more than 81,600 Americans remain missing from World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Cold War, and the Gulf Wars or other conflicts. Of those, over 41,000 are presumed lost at sea in events such as ship losses and known aircraft water losses. 2,403 Americans were killed that day, many trapped forever in the murky waters of the Pacific. Today, we honor and tell the stories of those brave men. It was a Sunday morning, and the day was just beginning for the sailors, marines, airmen, and their families stationed at the beautiful port of Pearl Harbor. Shocked that they were able to cross 3,500 miles of open water without being detected, the Japanese fighter were to waste no opportunity and were ordered to quote-unquote strafe and destroy as many parked aircraft as possible to ensure they did not get into the air to intercept the bombers, especially in the first wave. When the fighter's fuel got low, they were able to refuel at the aircraft carriers and return to combat. This was able to be done twice, barely giving the American forces time to retaliate. Stephen Bauer Young, author of the book Trapped at Pearl Harbor, would write, quote, It was the first time since the Oki had come out to Pearl Harbor earlier in the year that all the fleet battleships operating in the Hawaiian area had been ordered into the port at the same time. It didn't make much sense. As a precautionary measure, it had been the practice to keep some of the heavy fleet units always at sea as tensions with Japan built up in the Far East, end quote. And while the Japanese flyers did go after Hickam Field and Wheeler Fields, the dive bombers were able to drop bombs and slow torpedoes at the still and unguarded battleships below, the USS Vestal, a repair ship, the Tennessee, the Maryland, the West Virginia, the Oklahoma, the Arizona, the California, and the USS Nevada. All tragedies of Pearl Harbor. Honorable mention, USS Utah. While the Utah wasn't considered one of Battleship Row, it was stationed at Pearl Harbor during the attack, and sadly it rolled over and sank, taking 58 crew members. Three of its crew are forever entombed inside, unable to be rescued. The ship was never salvaged or repurposed and remains where it sank in Pearl Harbor, on the other side of Ford Island. Side note, the Nevada was the only ship that was able to get underway that morning, and even more interesting, it stuck around long enough to be the only battleship to be of service in both Pearl Harbor and Normandy. The USS Pennsylvania happened to be in dry dock that morning, and the Colorado, making up the Pacific Fleet's nine, was in overhaul in Bremerton, Washington. 
Within 12 minutes of the first bomb to be dropped, the USS Oklahoma would be the first to go under. She was ultimately hit by seven torpedoes and two bombs, the first from just 20 feet below the waterline. With gaping holes in her fuel bunkers, her massive body rolled over with her masts lodging into the ground, underwater, trapping hundreds inside. Sailors attempting to find safety in rafts were shot at from the air by low-flying Japanese aircraft. Flames erupting from the exploded boilers, feeding off of the spilt oil on the surface, meant that those jumping from the capsized vessel trying to survive would have to swim through boiling water or gingerly climb over licking flames on singed ropes to safety on a neighboring ship, the Maryland. Many from the Maryland called out to the crew encouraging them to cling to the mooring lines to reach safety. Many who braved the escape were covered in burns, but survived. Over 400, however, would perish. The USS Oklahoma had interesting circumstances happening that helped speed up her demise. Not only had the night before counted the conclusion of several sailors' leave, i.e. hangovers, the ship was preparing for an admiral's inspection the next day, which meant a different protocol was followed. For example, on a regular evening, all ships, according to the Navy regulations, whether at port or at anchor, follow a quote-unquote condition Z at the end of each working day. This means that all watertight compartments are closed at the third deck and below. This allows the ship to stay upright if it is struck by torpedoes, etc. According to Stephen Bauer Young, he writes, quote, Protective blisters extended along the length of the ship at the waterline. The blisters were designed to absorb the explosions of torpedoes before they could penetrate the skin of the ship to do extensive damage, end quote. But due to the Admiral inspection set for December 8th, all the watertight compartments were opened, and so were the protective blisters. Young says, quote, It was dangerous. The ships were vulnerable and could not contain any damage received from any enemy. There was little, if any, watertight integrity in the Oklahoma this weekend. She was in a state of complete non-readiness, end quote. The Oklahoma was tipped completely over since all the watertight doors were wide open. It did not help the ship any, but this one fact could help save the lives of more men. When Condition Z happens, the doors close automatically and does not care who is left on one side or the other. So even while the ship was turning over, crewmen were not trapped behind watertight doors. We'll discuss the Oklahoma a bit more later, but let me introduce the rest of the battleship cast. She was known as the Fighting Mary among her crew, and she didn't disappoint. She probably received the least amount of damage thanks to the attack, but still lost four of her crew. The USS Maryland would go on to serve throughout World War II on both the offense and the defense. She went on to survive two other kamikaze attacks, and when she rested and repaired, she went out for more. Headed for the heat of battle within the Pacific Theater, they received word that the war was over. She was able to return home. She was decommissioned on April 15, 1947. The USS California, on the morning of the attack, was primed and ready for... inspection. The crew was up, the brass could produce a reflection just like the Oklahoma. All the watertight doors were open for quick access. As we now know... Great for inspection, not so great for an attack. The first torpedo hit and ripped a gaping hole, allowing water to pour in, causing the ship to begin its slow decline into the water. The explosion managed to destroy the ship's electrical system and wipe out the ship's ability to save itself by disabling the pumping systems. The water came relentlessly pouring in, slowly pulling the ship to its side and then under. Luckily, Lieutenant Commander Marion Little was thinking on his feet and quickly got things to rights. Men were sent on deck to direct fire at the low-flying planes while others were attempting to close the watertight doors and get the ship upright. A second torpedo blasted the ship less than two minutes after the first, and then a bomb from above, and then another. The bomb would end up blasting through two decks and setting massive fires that spread quickly. The California would end up losing 105 of its crew members, but not before the brave men helped to do some damage of their own. Thanks to their bravery, several men earned the Medal of Honor having died from their efforts. 
the California did end up sinking into the mud, but then was later able to be pumped out and the ship brought back to the surface. She wasn't able to get to the dry dock until April, but was completely overhauled and rebuilt before being sent back out for duty in May of 1944. On December 6th, the USS Vestal had just arrived to Ford Island and pulled up alongside the USS Arizona. The next day, being Sunday, would give the Vestal, which was a repair ship, opportunity to do a routine peacetime quote-unquote tender upkeep. But at 7.55, even the Vestal went to general quarters, which I found out was the equivalent to all-hands-on-deck kind of thing. All crew members prepare for battle and whatnot. Even though it was a repair ship, it was heavily armed and wasted no time in firing at the Japanese aircraft. A bomb dropped on the repair ship's deck, sending crewmen in every direction and taking out an additional two decks below it. Fire rushed up the gaping hole while the front magazines were flooded to keep the ammunition from another explosion. Following close behind the first, another bomb took out another two decks on the starboard side. And then the Arizona, which was snuggled right in between the Vestal and the Tennessee, took a hit that blasted their main battery magazine. The whole front of the Arizona exploded, its blast knocking crewmen off decks and the surrounding ships. Oil spewed from everywhere and touched off several more explosions affecting all the vessels around her. The Vestal immediately got underway, which means even with holes ripped from her middle, she was able to get away from the burning inferno that was the Arizona. Luckily, the tug, Hoga, was nearby and able to assist the Vestal to safety. Within a week, the Vestal and that amazing crew was able to do repair work on the ship itself, since it would take too long in dry dock, and since the dry dock was a little full, this way they could at the same time aid in raising the Oklahoma. Side note, when the first explosion hit the Arizona and the blast cleared everyone from the deck of the Vestal, one man, Commander Kaysen Young, who was the captain of the ship, actually swam back to the Vestal to get her out of there safely. Reports say he calmly but dripping wet would say, quote, Lads, we're getting this ship underway, end quote. And they did. The USS Tennessee was blocked in by the Arizona, the West Virginia, the Maryland, and the Pennsylvania. By the time the Oklahoma had been hit, the crew of the Tennessee were already topside and at general quarters assuming battle stations. In less than 10 minutes, the anti-aircraft guns were firing at the attackers. The crew below deck were attempting to fire up the boilers and get the ship out of harm's way, but that's when the surrounding ships were hit and impeded the Tennessee's escape. By now, the Oklahoma had capsized, the West Virginia, which we'll cover more later, was sinking, and the Arizona had exploded, sending oil and fire in every direction. Oil poured from the targeted ships and created a literal ring of fire around the mostly unharmed Tennessee. It survived two direct bomb hits that managed to take out turret 2 and 3, but the Tennessee chose to flood the ship's magazines to keep it from catching fire. The Tennessee gunners were responsible for taking down at least five Japanese aircraft and assisting in the takedown of others. Eventually, the Tennessee would find its freedom once the Maryland was pulled out. The staith which the Tennessee was moored to had been destroyed since the sunken Oklahoma was squishing it into the West Virginia. Once the main repairs were done, she tagged along with the Maryland and the Pennsylvania escorted by the destroyers to be thoroughly repaired and returned to active duty. Let's take a quick break before we tackle the West Virginia and the most recognized battleship from Pearl Harbor, the Arizona. Hang tight. We'll be right back. Hello, everyone. It's time for a Bag of Bones sponsor break, and this one highlights Lumi deodorant. But today, we're not talking about their amazing deodorant products. If you didn't know already, Lumi also creates body wash. Makes sense, right? And you'll be happy to know that the same care that goes into the deodorant carries over to the body wash line as well. Lumi's acidified body wash is clinically proven to work three times better than ordinary soap. Lumi has a low pH, making it perfect for sensitive skin, and it eliminates odor in all the places, promoting healthier, softer skin. If you haven't already tried the body wash, consider using the Bag of Bones link in the show notes to give it a try. 
It has a money-back guarantee and free shipping with any order of $25 or more. Plus, you help support an awesome podcast. Hint, hint. If you know you stink or you take showers regularly, this product is for you. Give it a try today. Click the link in the show notes. When it was all said and done, the 353 Imperial Japanese aircraft managed to damage all eight battleships that were in port, sinking four. And as I mentioned, over 2,000 died and over 1,100 were wounded. In less than two hours, the Americans stationed at Pearl Harbor were left to sift through the mess, fire, and debris for survivors. So, before I move on to the West Virginia and the Arizona, I'd like to step back to the Oklahoma. Now, imagine what was once considered one of the most beautiful and peaceful places on Earth is hidden by huge towers of billowing smoke. The atmosphere is suffocating with heat, and the taste of oil with every gasp of air. Fires continue for days, and bodies keep rising to the surface, adding to the death toll. Add to that, your country has just entered the war. There is no time to mourn. Not all of the men died instantly. Yes, many were taken to the hospital, but would soon realize they were mortally wounded. But for some, it would take several days to die. Some had found air pockets within the hulls of the sinking ships and willed themselves to keep swimming to allow their faces to touch the precious air. When the Oklahoma rolled to her side, it trapped 450 men below deck, and the longer the ship stayed submerged, the more dangerous the rescue attempts would be. One false move could drown everyone due to the suction of air, or one false tap could create an explosion with all the live wires and fuel pouring over every surface. No one on the rescue committees outside could have any idea of what was happening on the inside of the ship's steel skin. Sometimes that tiny pocket of air that was keeping them alive would be released in seconds if opening the space in the wrong section caused the entire area to flood. It was a tricky business, but everyone wanted to at least try. Julio de Castro was one of those determined to go in and do what he could. De Castro wasn't in the military. He was a civilian who worked in the naval yard. While helping with the cleanup, he heard frenzied banging of soldiers trapped inside. Stephen Bauer Young was one of the sailors trapped in the Oklahoma. He and ten fellow seamen were below a gun turret near the bottom of the ship when it capsized. Now they were stuck near the top of the vessel. With air supply dissipating and the water rising in the pitch-black compartment, Young and the others took turns banging out SOS in Morse code with a wrench. Young would write, quote, We had no knowledge that any attempt at rescue was even being made until the first sounds of an air hammer were heard as dawn came over the islands. End quote. Julio found others willing to pitch in, so he grabbed his tools and equipment and headed out to break through the Oklahoma hull. It was tireless work, but he didn't care. He first attempted a blowtorch, but discovered quickly there was too many flammable substances that would ignite. They resorted to chipping guns. Using compressed air, they rapidly hammered away in small areas to cut through the sometimes 16 inches of steel. They used the option of the Oklahoma tipping over and exposing her underside as the thickness of the steel was usually reduced to a mere quarter inch. But steel is steel, and the process is still the same, very slow, and the extra danger of they had no idea what they were hammering into. They didn't know if a fuel tank or ammunition was being stored just there. It took almost two days of constant hammering using the light from the burning Arizona to keep going. Finally, they managed to open a section. Within seconds, hands and faces pushed into the opening, bottlenecking their escape. They had to act fast as the water was quickly pouring into the compartment faster than the men were getting out. Julio de Castro was a civilian worker just trying to do his part. Thirty-two men were able to be saved. Father Aloysius Smith a Navy chaplain saved at least 12 men when he became trapped in a compartment with only a single porthole to escape. One by one, he helped them through the porthole. When it came his time to leave, 
and more men had run into the compartment finding the escape route, Father Schmidt backed out of the opening, giving up his turn, and helped more men escape. He was posthumously given the Silver Star for heroism. It reads, quote, For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity, on 7 December 1941, while serving as chaplain aboard USS Oklahoma during the attack by Japanese forces on the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. When Oklahoma capsized, Lieutenant Junior Grade Schmidt, along with other members of the crew, became trapped in a compartment where only a small porthole provided outlet for escape. With unselfish disregard for his own plight, he assisted his shipmates through the aperture. When they in turn were in process of rescuing him, his body became tightly wedged in a narrow opening. Realizing that other men had come into the compartment seeking a way out, Lieutenant Schmidt insisted he be pushed back into the ship so that others might escape. Calmly urging them on with a pronouncement of his blessing, he remained behind while his shipmates crawled out to safety. In doing so, he gallantly gave up his life for his country. Lieutenant Schmidt's magnanimous courage and self-sacrifice reflected great credit on him and were in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. End quote. The Oklahoma was eventually raised and by June 1943, naval specialists would be able to remove and begin the identification process of those bodies previously submerged inside the ship. The Oklahoma did not return to duty, but was salvaged for all her pieces and parts, and in May 1947, she was all set for a formal retirement celebrating her service. She wouldn't make it, however. On the night of May 17th, Two tugboats were slowly taking the mighty Oklahoma to San Francisco Bay when they were hit by an unexpected storm. The tugboats began to feel themselves being pulled backwards as the Oklahoma was being swallowed up by the sea. The skippers were forced to release the cables linking them and literally almost lost their lives in the process. The Oklahoma slipped beneath the water and disappeared forever. To this day, no one knows the exact location of the battleship USS Oklahoma. Only a 40-foot mast remains that was discovered in a 2006 dredging and is now on display at the Muskegee War Memorial Park, Oklahoma, along with a bell and the aft wheel. In 1950, 394 unidentified soldiers and Marines were buried in 61 caskets in 45 graves at the Punch Bowl. The USS West Virginia was commissioned in December 1923. Nicknamed the Weavy, the USS West Virginia measured more than 600 feet long and could hold over 1,400 sailors. She took part in training and tactical development operations until 1939 and was sent to Pearl Harbor in 1940. On December 7, 1941, the USS West Virginia was sunk by six torpedoes and two bombs, killing 106 crew members. It was just after 8 a.m. when the first bomb plunged into the hull of the West Virginia. The cooking staff was up preparing breakfast, others were in the shower, and still others waking up prior to call were tending to mundane tasks such as laundry. No one knew what happened when the first torpedo made contact, but after the second, everyone was sent to their battle stations. Quote, I didn't expect to get off the ship alive, signalman Gene Merrill would say after surviving the attack of the West Virginia. He had felt three bombs and barely survived one that dropped about 25 feet in front of him that luckily turned out to be a dud. The West Virginia was starting to list, making half of their guns useless. It was then that Captain Ricketts called for Condition Z which we now know means to shut off all of the watertight doors to salvage the integrity of the ship and keep it from tipping over completely. The ship was already done for, and now it was able to sink straight down instead of leaning into the other ship like the Oklahoma did trapping the Tennessee. The entire ship was rattling with the constant strafing of the fighter planes shooting at anything that moved. Crews scrambled in different directions. Some were sent above to return fire. Some were sent to the compartments for damage control. Jean Merrill was recruited to go deeper into the ship to try and help others who had become trapped or wounded. He'd say, quote, 
By this time, we had probably taken three, maybe four of the hits out of the nine, and I think we were sitting on the bottom, end quote. The ships around them were exploding and fire surrounded everyone, and the fighters wouldn't hesitate to swoop down and rain bullets on everyone. There was no place to hide, and while some were evacuating the ship, Jean Merrill and nine others found themselves going deeper. No sooner had they stepped into the water, they saw they were surrounded by dead bodies. Merrill would say that he would, quote, give everyone a cursory examination to see if there was any life, end quote before floating the body to the base of the ladder to be hoisted up. Quote, I was never so scared in my life, but I managed to stay down until the water and the oil from the fractured fuel tanks had come up so high that I was swimming close to the overhead. It was getting higher and higher, and I finally had to go up the ladder myself and come up. End quote. He'd continue saying, quote, I had no idea how many bodies I floated to the ladder. I have no idea who they were. I had no idea how many, if any of them, ultimately survived. When I came up to the third division compartment, I found out that the order to abandon ship had been long since given. For the most part, the ship had been abandoned. There was fire coming forward from the aft of the ship, and I'm sorry to say that when we left the third division, there were people that we passed up. End quote. Dory Miller, who unfortunately was named Doris, was sent to his battle station when the announcement came over the loudspeaker. He was one of the men doing his laundry when the first explosion hit. Following protocol, he went to his battle station only to discover that it was already completely underwater. His commanding officer sent him to the top deck to help. He was a big man, and also the ship's heavyweight boxing champion. He dove in immediately, helping the injured men get to safety. While above deck, an explosion happened over on the Tennessee. This was the explosion that blew out their second turret, and it sent shrapnel across to the West Virginia. A chunk of the shrapnel managed to cut through the gut of Captain Mervyn Bennion. Dory rushed to take him to safety, and the captain insisted he be set down at once. He was clearly terminal, holding his innards in with one hand. He demanded to be allowed to continue to tend to his ship. Andrew Donaldson would write on the anniversary of the attack, quote, her captain, Mervyn Bennion, was all but disemboweled when a bomb exploded the command deck while directing the defense of his ship, continuing to command while holding his own wound closed and refusing aid while he lay dying. He was one of 15 Medal of Honor recipients from that day, like most of them posthumously. Dory Miller, who attended him among many others that day, and later took the ship's anti-aircraft defenses, would become the first African-American recipient of the Navy Cross for his actions. But far below the superstructure of the ship, another drama was playing out. With all the torpedo hits on one side of the ship, quick-thinning damage control officers led the effort to counter-flood the ship, purposefully sinking West Virginia at her moorings, but preventing her from capsizing. West Virginia settled into the relatively shallow water of Pearl Harbor with her superstructure still able to fight both the Japanese and the raging fires, giving her crew a chance to escape and preserving the hope the ship could later be salvaged. End quote. Dory Miller was ordered to help others by the bleeding captain, which he did, but came across a supervisor manning one of the 50 caliber anti aircraft guns. He helped load ammunition into the gun so it could continue being fired. Miller saw the gun next to him was unmanned. Even though he wasn't trained on the weapon, he stepped up to it, pointed, and shot, not taking his finger off the trigger until the gun was empty. He would recall the planes were flying really close. Quote, I pulled the trigger and she worked fine. I guess I fired her for about 15 minutes. I think I got one of those planes. End quote. He was then ordered to abandon ship. Captain Brennian had fallen and refused to be taken from the ship to safety. Miller followed orders and dove into the water, steadily helping others to safety. Doris Miller would survive Pearl Harbor attack, and many owed their life to his bravery. On May 27, 1942, he would be awarded the Navy Cross. His citation reads, quote, For distinguished devotion to duty, extraordinary courage, and disregard for his own personal safety during the attack on the fleet in Pearl Harbor, Territory of Hawaii by Japanese forces on December 7, 1941. 
while at the side of his captain on the bridge, Miller, despite enemy strafing and bombing, and in the face of serious fire, assisted in moving his captain, who had been mortally wounded, to a place of greater safety, and later manned and operated a machine gun directed at enemy Japanese attacking aircraft until ordered to leave the bridge. Miller would not survive World War II, but in 1973, the Navy would commission a frigate, the USS Miller, in his honor. James Downing was a newlywed the morning of the attack, so he was at home when the explosions got his attention. Not wasting a moment, he made his way to the shore's edge just in time to have a Japanese aircraft shoot a row of bullets that would have split him in two had they been just a few inches to the left. He made his way out to his ship, the West Virginia, who, by this time, was already done in. Fires were everywhere, so he picked up a hose being supplied by the neighboring Tennessee and got to work putting out the fire that was heading towards live ammunition. Once that was contained, he started paying attention to all the bodies that were lifeless across the deck. He went to as many as he could before ordered from the ship and collected their names. That evening, he went to the hospital to visit a friend and while there collected names and addresses of parents of the other patients. They were covered in burns and oil. He knew they were suffering and gave him the information he requested. Downing would say the men were so optimistic, saying, Don't worry about me. I'm going to be all right. They were so optimistic. Most of them died that night. Quote. James Downing would write a letter explaining what happened to every single one of those men's parents. Adone Cal Calderon almost got taken out three times on December 7th. He was stationed on the West Virginia, but was also a member of the band. He was hanging out with the band members on the Arizona, and since it was so late on the 6th, they suggested that he just stay there. That was vetoed, so Cal was headed back to his ship, the West Virginia. The next morning was that of the attack, and while he was drinking his coffee, the ship rattled around him. Once, twice, then three times before he heard a whoosh and found out later that the Arizona was going up in flames. Within moments, hundreds of those sailors sleeping peacefully had perished. Even though he joined the Navy for the band, Cal was also trained for damage control. So while he was in the lower compartments trying to keep the ship level, another explosion trapped him and six others in a small room. The water was filling up fast. They knew there was an air vent near the top of the room and also knew that would be their only chance to survive. As they stood on their tiptoes, sucking in the last of the air, he and others filled their lungs. He'd say, quote, We were trained about going underwater. Take two deep breaths and go under. You hold that as long as you can, then let out the air. Then you have about ten seconds left. Then you die, end quote. They swam toward the vent and prayed they'd have enough air to make it to the deck. He recalls thinking that he couldn't hold his breath any longer, but continued to kick with the last of his strength. He'd say, quote, You'd be surprised how hard you fight when you're getting ready to die, end quote. They reached the end and took in a deep breath of air as they spilled out onto the deck. There was no time to be thankful as the world around them was in sheer chaos explosions and fire, and suddenly bullets raining down all around them. Cal recalls, quote, They were machine-gunning anything they could, end quote. Suddenly, Cal feels a sharp pain in his head. Quote, Shrapnel hit me in the face. You know how head wounds are. I was bleeding like a stuck pig, end quote. Calderon was taken to shore by a rescue boat and then to the hospital. Quote, The whole street was lined up with guys. The medical personnel were going with lipstick and paint and marking who could be saved and who they couldn't do anything for, end quote. And when he found out he was going to live, he turned right back around and headed right to his ship to help put out fires. Quote, I was young. I was full of adrenaline, end quote. He helped the others in putting out fires and searching for survivors, later saddened by the fact that there were so few. Later, as he lay by himself in bed, only then did he realize everything that had happened and the reality hit home. He was lucky to be alive. He'd say, quote, That was when the adrenaline was gone and the reality comes back. End quote. When the West Virginia was finally raised six months later, 106 men had died with approximately 70 bodies found trapped in compartments 
and another twenty-five unaccounted for and presumed dead. This included the unspoken three. Hey everyone, I'm Katie Bougeret-Caldwell, creator of the Ragtag Network. The Ragtag Network is home to an eclectic assortment of podcast content such as Save Me an Isle Seed, Bag of Bones, Total Tomfoolery, and more. To find out more about us and the content we produce, check us out at www.ragtagnetwork.com. We look forward to your visit. In May of 1942, as the body retrieval crews were clearing the ship under the supervision of Commander Paul Dice, they came across a section, a pump room referred to as A-109, and noticed that it was completely dry. Inside the room, they found three bodies huddled together. They would be identified as Ronald Endicott, Cliff Olds, and Louis Coston. It wasn't the fact that they came across more dead bodies. It was the remnants of survival that caused each man to choke up. Strewn across the floor were flashlights and spent batteries, signifying how they tried to stave away the pitch-black days and nights. Empty food rations and a manhole cover to the fresh water tanks had been removed. Further inspection of the room uncovered an eight-day clock, but there was one item that brought everyone there to a silent halt. A calendar. A simple paper calendar. The days were marked off with a red pencil from December 7th until December 23rd. At least one of the men had lasted for 16 days until Christmas Eve. The emotion in the small room was palatable. Commander Dice's report would read in part, quote, Three bodies were found on the shelf of storeroom A-111, clad in blues and jerseys. The storeroom was open to fresh water pump A-109, which was apparently the battle station assigned to these men, end quote. The bodies were removed, and two were buried on the island, and only Cliff Old's remains were sent home to Stanton, North Dakota, to his family. Their death was marked as December 7, 1941, and their parents never knew the truth but there were many who did know the true story. Those who had to stand guard beside the ships the days following the attack heard the clanging pleas from the men caught inside. Knowing there was nothing that could be done to save them, the crew had to swallow their guilt as the banging continued day after day, night after night, until it stopped, making the silence even more deafening. Were they the only ones? Probably not. But the calendar was a very real, heart-wrenching truth of the struggle of those men left behind. The truth was, the fate of 60-plus crewmen were sealed when the captain called for Condition Z, as some called it, Set Z. The doors were locked tight, and those trapped on the inside of the compartment would take their last breaths within. Lieutenant Claude Ricketts called the order to seal the doors and save the lives of hundreds unfortunately, at the cost of others. Those trapped below had no idea what was happening above deck and most probably died quickly, within days. But because of the compartment where Olds, Endicott, and Coston were, was airtight, they were able to survive longer. Richard Fisk, who would be one of the men who stood guard, believed they took turns banging on the pipes for help. Thanks to the ticking of the eight-day clock at the end of each 24-hour period, they marked their calendar, but rescue was impossible. And I know what you're thinking. I did too. Couldn't they just insert obvious way to save their lives? But unfortunately, it wasn't that easy. As we touched on during the Oklahoma story, there was so much at stake. Many men died instantly at attempted rescue from asphyxiation when the water rushed out the moment the hull was breached. If they would have drilled a hole in the ship, the water would have rushed in and drowned them before they could have been removed. They couldn't use blowtorches because of all the spilt flammable fluids clinging to every surface. And even though the harbor is relatively shallow, only around 30 to 40 feet, the compartments were completely submerged, and with the tools and technology they had at the time, a rescue would not have been possible. Quote, the water was shallow enough that the ship's bridge was above water. The problem was the location. If they wanted to drill through the side, they would have to cut through two full fuel tanks. If they wanted to come in through the front or top, they would have to cut through ammunition stores. 
If they wanted to cut through the back, they would have just drilled into the water already flooding the ship. End quote. I know. It stayed with me too. For days. I kept digging and digging trying to find ways that it could have been avoided. I mean, I can't imagine the men that probably heard that dull clanging for the rest of their lives. Not to mention the loneliness and despair of the three trapped inside, clinging to hope. Marine Corps bugler Richard Fisk would recall, quote, Pretty soon, nobody wanted to do guard duty, especially at night when it was quiet. It went on for 16 days, slowing in frequency until Christmas Eve, then silence, end quote. One of the founding directors of the USS Missouri Memorial Association, Michael Lilly, would say, quote, A diver had nearly died trying to rescue men from the USS Arizona, which is one of the reasons they didn't go into the West Virginia. It would haunt me if I was one of those sailors who heard those guys banging around down there for two weeks. It would never leave me. It's despairing to think we couldn't do anything to bring them up. It's a sad, sad tale, end quote. They are referred to as the Unknown Three because their story didn't reach outside the confines of those who were present at the time until 1991. A newspaper article would write, quote, When Nathan and Jane Olds of Stanton, North Dakota, Ralph and Vera Endicott of Aberdeen, Washington, and Effie Coston of Henryville, Indiana, were informed by the U.S. Navy in December 1941 that each of their families had lost a son during the Japanese Pearl Harbor bombing, they were heartbroken. Clifford Olds, 20, Ronald Endicott, 18, and Louis Buddy Coston, 21, had been sailors on the battleship USS West Virginia, which had been hit by a series of bombs and torpedoes. The telegrams merely stated that the three young men, quote, died at their duty stations, end quote. I guess it's not a lie. But even when the siblings of the three men discovered the secret, they too thought it best to keep the painful truth from their parents. The girlfriend of Ronald Endicott at the time, Velma Partridge, now Lawrence, would say, quote, I heard the story of the trapped men because it was published in a local paper in 1991. As a matter of fact, his parents got word the middle of December in 41 that he'd been killed. It tears your heart out to think that at that very moment he was trying desperately to live, end quote. Lawrence says that on their last night together they went to a Charlie Chaplin movie. Quote, the next night my dad and me took him to the bus and I never saw him again, end quote. The West Virginia was eventually salvaged and sent to Puget Sound to be repaired in 1943. After a year's worth of repairs and upgrades, she returned to the fray. As a key component in many Pacific battles, she was also present at Tokyo Bay during the Japanese surrender. There at the beginning, there at the end. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a five-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you! As for the Arizona, named for the 48th state, she had been part of the British Grand Fleet at the end of World War I. She had taken President Woodrow Wilson to the Paris Peace Conference, President Hoover on a cruise of the Caribbean, assisted in providing aid after the 1933 Long Beach earthquake, and even starred in a movie along with James Cagney in 1934. The USS Arizona had been moved from California to Hawaii to show force and strength, hoping to intimidate the Japanese, if America ever joined the war. 
On December 6th, she had actually just returned from training and was in the harbor for some minor repairs and upgrades, which was why the Vestal had pulled up alongside of her. The ship's air raid alarm would go off about 7.55 a.m., and shortly thereafter, the crew scrambled to general quarters. Just after 8 a.m., the first of 10 Nakajima B-5N2 torpedo bombers were launched at the Arizona. Within five minutes, she would become incapacitated and ablaze from the direct hits. The ship would be struck four times with three of the other bombs landing just around the ship. She was hit almost simultaneously from aft to stern and through each deck. She didn't stand a chance. The mighty USS Arizona sunk in only nine minutes. Time magazine online would write, quote, The forward deck of the Arizona was struck by a 1,760-pound bomb that triggered a massive explosion lifted the 33,000-ton vessel out of the water and killed 1,177 sailors and marines instantly, end quote. This was caused from the bomb directly hitting the thousands upon thousands of pounds of ammunition stored below deck. The temperatures were so intense, crew members received burns from the blast on neighboring ships. It's said that the temperatures reached as high as 8,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which is three times as hot as volcano lava. Thanks to the steady supply of oil, the fire burned continuously for three days before they could get close enough to try and help those who may be trapped. From the official Pearl Harbor website, quote, In the early hours of December 7, 1941, Donald Stratton stepped out onto the Arizona's deck and spotted the Japanese dive bombers launching their assault. When the call to battle stations was made, he climbed three ladders to reach his station. As he attempted to direct the five-inch guns, the bombers swooped in on the ship and her crew. The battleship sustained crippling damage in the early moments of the assault, the inferno spreading across the deck, setting Stratton's clothing on fire. He and other survivors gathered together and signaled for help, which caught the attention of Joe George aboard the nearby USS Vestal. Though George had been ordered to sever the line with Arizona, he kept the two ships tied together and threw a line to the men aboard the doomed battleship. His actions saved the injured Stratton and five of his shipmates. End quote. Franklin Van Valkenburg, who served as the last captain on the Arizona, would be awarded the Medal of Honor posthumously. On that fateful day, no sooner had the siren rang out, he made his way to the deck to begin commanding his crew. His quartermaster urged him to seek safety in the conning tower so he would be less exposed, but the captain refused. He continued to call out orders through the chaos. When one of the bombs hit the deck of the ship, an ensign, the quartermaster, and Captain von Valkenburg were thrown. The ensign was said to have survived, but the bodies of the other two were never found. The only thing retrieved from the fire was the captain's Annapolis class ring. His Medal of Honor citation reads, quote, For conspicuous devotion to duty, extraordinary courage, and complete disregard of his own life during the attack of the fleet in Pearl Harbor by Japanese forces on September 7, 1941. As commanding officer of the USS Arizona, Captain Van Valkenburg gallantly fought his ship until the USS Arizona blew up from magazine explosions and a direct bomb hit on the bridge which resulted in the loss of his life. End quote. Ken Potts, one of the last survivors of the Arizona, says, quote, All you could see was fire. It looked like the whole world was on fire. End quote. Once the fire was under control, Ken was one of the crew that volunteered to return to the ship to search for survivors, guns, and any ammunition. He said he would spend the night on what was left of the quickly sinking ship. He would recall, quote, no one slept that night, end quote. He would say the most haunting task he ever had to tackle was attempting to recover bodies that were left on the ship. Because of the way the ship sank, it was extremely difficult to salvage it and rescue the other Paris soldiers and Marines. Edward Raymer would write in his book, Descent into Darkness, where he talks about being one of the divers using new equipment, untested and potentially deadly diving techniques, 
while being sent inside the Arizona, plunged into darkness, as the clever title alludes to, not knowing what they'd find. He writes, quote, We experienced a world of total blackness, unable to see even the faceplates of our helmets. By memorizing the ship's blueprints and using their sense of touch, we groped our way hundreds of feet inside the sunken vessels to make repairs and salvage vital war material. The divers learned how to cope with such unseen dangers as falling objects, sharks, the eerie presence of floating human bodies, and the constant threat of Japanese attack from above. End quote. Here's an excerpt from the book. Quote, Suddenly I felt that something was wrong. I tried to suppress the strange feeling that I was not alone. I reached out to feel my way with ungloved hands and touched what seemed to be a large inflated bag floating on the overhead. As I pushed it away, my bare hand plunged through what felt like a mass of rotted sponge. I realized with horror that the bag was a body without a head. Gritting my teeth, I shoved the corpse as hard as I could. As it drifted away, its fleshless fingers raked across my rubberized suit, almost as if the dead sailor were reaching out to me in a silent cry for help. I felt the bodies floating above me. Soon, the overhead was filled with floating forms. Obviously, my movement through the water created a suction effect that drew the floating masses to me. Their skeletal fingers brushed across my copper helmet. The sound reminded me of the tinkle of oriental wind chimes. I shuffled through the workshop area. This shop had been the damage control battle station for 100 of the crew. The violent explosions from the bombs and torpedoes Plus, the forceful impact of the water must have thrown the sailors like ragdolls against bulkheads, breaking their necks and severing skulls from spines. When I stopped, I found myself surrounded by ghostly, bloating forms floating on the overhead, all without heads. End quote. Of the 1,177 USS Arizona sailors and marines killed at Pearl Harbor, more than 900 could not be removed and have been left behind forever entombed on the ship. James Downing from the West Virginia reflects on that December day in 1941 and recalls, quote, I've looked back at my gambit of emotions, and the first thing was surprise, just that big number of planes to come out of every place. The next thing was fear, and then there was anger. I was angry with our own leadership diplomatic and military for letting us get caught in a situation like that. Then there's a little bit of resolve. And that was, if I ever get in a position of authority, we will never be caught napping like that. But kind of overarching all of it was pride. Here we had over a couple thousand people killed here, and things were pretty disorderly, but everybody instinctively did the right thing. They saw what needed to be done and did it. So I was really proud of our response that morning. End quote. In case you were wondering, on that fateful day, the Japanese loss was around 29 aircrafts, 5 midget submarines, and 64 deaths. Japanese didn't announce their declaration of war against the United States until later that day. It wasn't received until the following day. But the message at Pearl Harbor was loud and clear. By December 11th, everyone was declaring war on everyone. And if you have time for one more little snippet, stay tuned and I'll bring you up to speed with the Arizona. Hello listeners, we are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt. And we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat. A show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, We'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. The Arizona was taken out of commission on December 29, 1941. And at the time, they believed it was going to be temporary. But it would turn out that the explosion to the magazine was too much damage to come back from. She was considered scrapped and removed from the Naval Vessel Register in December of 1942. The gun turrets from the main aft were removed, straightened, and aligned, and eventually installed on the USS Nevada in 1944. Before the war came to an end, 
the Arizona, or at least her gun turrets, got a bit of retaliation when the Nevada used these very guns to fire against the Japanese islands of Okinawa and Iwo Jima. It took through the administrations of Presidents Dwight D. Eisenhower and John F. Kennedy to finally get approval to designate the wreck as a national shrine and build the memorial in 1962. And believe it or not, it took the tireless persistence of Robert Ripley, of Ripley's Believe It or Not, in writing numerous letters and promoting the idea of a memorial through a radio broadcast. The Department of the Navy got involved and in 1949, a commission was created to build a permanent memorial right where the Arizona had fallen. Side note, in 1958, President Dwight D. Eisenhower approved raising funds that would be needed to turn the sunken Arizona into a memorial, realizing that over 500000 had to be privately financed to make it happen. In 1961, singer Elvis Presley would help raise more than 64000 from a benefit concert for the memorial, which, side note to the side note, was Elvis Presley's last final performance. In 1966, the completed memorial would be added to the National Register of Historic Places and then designated a National Historic Landmark in 1989. Call the Arizona their final resting place. The squashed milk carton, as it was sometimes called, is 184 feet long with a peak at each end connected by a lower sagging center. Honolulu architect Alfred Prius explains his vision as, quote, wherein the structure sags in the center but stands strong, victorious at the ends, expresses initial defeat and ultimate victory. The overall effect is one of serenity. End quote. Upon their death, survivors of the attack may have their ashes placed within the ship among their fallen comrades. Veterans who served aboard the ship at other times have the option to have their ashes scattered in the water above the ship. Time Online Magazine writes quote, The ship once held about 1.5 million gallons of Bunker Sea oil and the NPS estimates that 500,000 gallons remain within its hull. The Arizona continues to leak close to a gallon of oil every day. The oil that remains in the ship is not stored in one big tank, but in more than 200 different compartments, according to Seymour. Quote, It could be possible from an engineering standpoint to remove the oil, but it would require the total destruction of the ship. End quote. Apparently it's not so simple as taking a hose and draining out the oil because emptying the ship of water and oil would also likely result in the removing of the remains of the crew. The Park Service and the Coast Guard frequently monitor the leakage. Time says for now the fuel that rises to the surface comes up drop by drop rather than as a steady leak. Bubbles with a rainbow-looking sheen often appear for a few seconds before the fuel evaporates. End quote. Stories around the Arizona believe the black tears will continue to the surface for as long as there are survivors of its original sinking. As of February 2018, 43 U.S. Arizona survivors have been interred within the ship nested on the seafloor of the Pearl Harbor. Lauren Bruner was 21 when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, and he lived to be 98. Bruner made the 44th and final water burial at the sunset ceremony on the anniversary of the attack. The remaining survivors, Lou Conter, who is 98, and Ken Potts, also 98, are the last from the Arizona and have made their wishes known to be buried with their families. Only those who served on the Arizona and the Utah, the other sunken vessel that remains in the harbor, have the option to be interred within the sunken vessel. Currently at the location of Battleship Row are the USS Arizona Memorial, the Battleship Missouri Memorial, and the USS Vestal Memorial. It's said that more than 2 million visitors per year make their way to visit the memorials each year. Thank you for joining me this week for our second episode of the third season. I wonder how many episodes it will take before I am no longer shocked that we've made it to three seasons. More than two, I can tell you that. Thank you again to Mr. Gatlin for requesting this topic. 
and I can't wait for you to hear what's coming next. I'm Elizabeth Bougerie. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougerie, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougerie.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.